Hey art enthusiasts, it's Mike Hendley. Welcome back to Drawing Inspiration. Each episode explores the artist's journey through interviews and personal insights. So come on in, get comfortable, and let's get inspired together. Episode 108, Golden Visions, Anna Gibbs on Nature and Gold Leaf Artistry. Hi everyone, and welcome back. I hope you are enjoying this time of year as we transition into 2024. And I hope you take this opportunity to kind of reflect on 2023 and what you've accomplished, what you've explored, and maybe what you'd like to try differently or do better. And I am going through that myself right now, trying to figure out what I'm doing next year and how I'm going to elevate my creative game. Uh, Everything's on the table, so I'm thinking through all that I do and when I do it and how I do it and the mediums. And I am excited about uh, hopefully finally trying oils over the holidays. And uh, so we'll see how that's going to go. I am going to finish the tiger once and for all. Uh, it's sitting in my <laughs> on my easel and I've been wanting to get back to it, but have not had a chance. And I've got this wonderful watercolor piece that I'm working on. And I'm hopeful that you're going to uh, follow me on Instagram or my blog and see how that turns out as well. Yeah, so there's been a lot I've accomplished, a lot I've changed with regard to the podcast, trying to find room for creativity and trying to find room for the podcast. I'm still kind of thinking through what the future of this looks like, and that's part of what I'm kind of pondering for 2024. I do have an episode that is recorded I'm looking forward to with an abstract artist in January, so that'll be the next episode. So I am putting aside some time over the holidays to get my thoughts together and get a bit of a plan in place and continue creating. That's what I have to do most um, above all else is is keep putting out the work, uh, keep trying the mediums, uh, pushing the mediums, and keep interacting with all of you as well. So let's see what the future holds. In the meantime, I've been doing a lot of coffeehouse sketches or paintings, and normally what I do is I have a reference I'm working on, or from, I should say, and I set it up on my phone I have a little built-in, a phone with a built-in stand on it, so I sit in a coffee shop and I simply roll out my kit and start drawing and painting. So one of the things I have not done is recorded any of these. What I am going to do is put together a setup such that I can record in a coffee shop. I'm also going to take advantage of the time over the holidays to record some from my home studio as well so that I can share some of the process around this. I love seeing it, and so I have to be mindful that I have to keep sharing it. And while the stills are fun, I I do want to share some more kind of video work, whether it's through Reels or through YouTube. It'll probably be a bit of both. And I've got some ideas with Procreate Dreams, which is a new app on the iPad that allows you to animate. And so I've got some ideas around that to weave that into some of what I do. So I want to play with that over the holidays too. So I've done, in the last... I guess few weeks I've done a pika, uh, which is a kind of a wonderful little bunny <laughs> type animal. Uh, somebody was mentioning to me, and it's like I remember that. So I, I drew and painted one of those. I did a, a betta fish, which is that was probably the most challenging watercolor piece I've done, just because of the rich colors of this fish. And it took me a while to work through it, but uh, I'm glad with how it um, how it turned out. I did some walruses and pencils, so I'm still doing a lot of pencil work. I've got a large lynx I'm working on as well, and I'm still, I've got a couple more videos left for the Etcher course I'm doing in March, and so I'm making sure to uh, 
to continue working in pencil when I can. I just, I have to, it's, I just love it so much just working with pencil, but once again, playing with the watercolors and then eventually moving to oils. I also did uh, a blue jay and a couple of owls in watercolor as well. And they're all on my Instagram and my blog. And they were, once again, all done in a coffee shop in my ASICs um, at your sketchbook. And as I mentioned before, I tend to go to these coffee shops really, really early in the morning before, on the way to work, basically. And I sit and draw for an hour, an hour and a half, and uh, then I go and do my day job. And I would love to be able to do this in the middle of the day, but sadly I cannot. <laughs> I will be doing some of that over the holidays and maybe even see if I can convince some local artists in my area to, to be, me do a, a bit of a meetup. It'd be fun to get down to Toronto and maybe do something there as well. So I'm going to reach out to some of you in Toronto and see if you're around and maybe that could be fun as well. So we shall see. Uh, I also did my first uh, Zoom session and I put the call out and I think it was about 11 or 12 of you uh, decided to join me on a Sunday and we chatted, painted and uh, shared stories, talked about birds and uh, New York City and everything else. It was wonderful to see uh, some some old faces <laughs> in the sense that I've known a few of these people for a while. And it was so great to meet some people that I've chatted with on Instagram and uh, everywhere else and never spoken to them in person. So it was a great opportunity to connect with, with friends. And I really enjoyed it. Uh, some people kept their camera off and their mic off, which was absolutely fine. And others were sharing their work, uh, either what they were working on or what they have done recently. And it was a great opportunity to just kind of hang out. Uh, so I'm going to be doing more of these. I will probably uh, obviously open it up to paid subscribers on my Substack, And then I will open it up to Instagram people and then I'll push it out to my newsletter. So I'm trying to do kind of a tiered approach. I'm trying to keep the number to maybe 20, 25 people when I do these, and I'm mindful of the time zones, so uh, I'm trying to accommodate everybody. But uh, if you see an odd time, it's simply because I'm trying to accommodate possibly people in the other part of the world, in Australia, New Zealand. I'm mindful of those people, especially with uh, the guests that I have today. So <laughs> there'll be more coming. Uh, I love that kind of interaction. And uh, once again, I'm trying to shift things up a little bit, and I don't know what 2024 holds for me, but I am going to be still creating, and I may just be doing it differently, but I am excited about what's to come. So that's it for updates. I just thought I'd touch on a few things I've been working on and thinking about, and I'm hopeful that you spend some time thinking about what you want to accomplish in 2024. And if you want to, reach out and share that with me. It helps to kind of put it down in writing, and you can send it by email or through Instagram or whatever messaging system you'd like. And I'd love to see what you're thinking about for 2024. And with that, let's head into the interview. In this episode of the Drawing Inspiration Podcast, Anna Gibbs discusses her artist's journey, balancing academic studies in philosophy, politics, and economics with her art passion. She shares her experiences with mental health and the intersection of philosophy and art in her life. Anna's move to New Zealand, her exploration of oil painting and digital art, and the professional challenges of pursuing art, including the impact of social media, are also something that we explore. We will delve deep into her recent experiences in applying gold leaf and then using layers of oil paint to render the beauty of native New Zealand birds. To talk about her creative journey, I welcome to the Drawing Inspiration podcast, Anna Gibbs. Hi, Anna. How are you? 
Hi, I'm good. Thanks so much for having me. Real honor to, to be invited. Well, I'm super excited. I am excited to have you on when I, uh, I've been following you for a while on Instagram and when I found your work and you, you were talking about working with gold <laughs> and I just, I was, I was blown away by that. Uh, and we're going to get into that a bit later when we talk about your techniques and that, but the fact that you've, uh, spent so much time, uh, drawing, uh, the birds and the animals that you do, I'm just, you know, I'm taken aback by that because that what is, that's what inspires me is nature and the way that you render it and the way that you do it. I need to know more because I, <laughs> I need to, I need to be more like you when I start getting into uh, working with oils and that. So I really want to hear kind of your perspective and, um, and your side of it. So I want to thank you for, cause you're on the other side of the world. So I appreciate us being able to be able to find a time that works for you and, and to be on the podcast. So thank you. Yeah, no, um, absolute pleasure to be here. Yeah, I'm I'm based in New Zealand, uh, but originally from the UK. Just for people who are confused by the accent and location, being <laughs> yes. out of sync. <laughs> so I always like to begin, as I always do, with understanding where you came from. And obviously, we're going to reach back to England on this one. But I know that you've uh, traveled around a little bit. But I'm wondering, uh, were you the artsy child? Were you the creative child, or did it hit you later in life? Yeah, um, so I was born in London and, and I am from the UK originally. And before my mum had kids, she was an artist for a while. So uh, my household was always very supportive of creativity and art. And she sent us to like, you know, art nursery school. <laughs> so in that sense, um, it's it's been there from the get go. Um, but I was also quite a, an academic and nerdy child so I think that my dual identity in my childhood was very much extremely creative but also quite academic and yeah I think that split and a kind of being torn between those two was a real story of me navigating my identity and what I really want that I'm sure will kind of continue to come up throughout the theme of this discussion but um yeah I, I was always making art as a young child um and then all the way through kind of primary school and high school uh, continuing to to do as much art as I could and like got to do lots of different sort of I don't know what subjects you have in Canada or all the different countries that the people who are listening live in but um, in the UK I did like textiles so like silk painting and mm -hmm. sewing machines and that kind of thing um, design technology which is like building stuff with wood and metal and you know more um, like skills as well as creativity I suppose in creating physical stuff um, and then the traditional kind of art that you would imagine where you do pottery and drawing and painting and all that kind of stuff um, and then as I got to my teens I think there was more pressure on me to decide whether I go down more of an academic road or a creative road um, and in the UK you get very highly specialised in your last years of school so uh, for me I mostly went down the academic road but I, I did art in addition to my school subjects as an extra subject in my free time. And then in the end decided to go for the academic university uh, route. So yeah, basically from, from very early on, I was always making art and always wanting to spend as much time as I possibly could making art. Uh, and yeah, it was, it was a real passion for me. So before you uh, went to university, did you, like, what was your focus with the art that you were doing? What was inspiring you? Because now it's obviously nature is driving that. Was it was it that at the time as well, or was it were you influenced by um, by comic books or Disney or or like 
was there something else or was it nature back then as well? Um, I think for me, there's definitely an element of nature. Um, I remember like in periods of, of kind of stressful times in my life that it, I didn't really notice this pattern when I was a child, but looking back, I would kind of go and draw outside um, with just a pen and paper or pencil and paper, um, even when I was, you know, maybe like around the age of 10. Um, and so I think nature was always something that was soothing to me. And then I could sometimes combine that with my art. Uh, but in terms of what I was spending my a lot of time doing, it was making all kinds of different creative things. I really I liked making creative cakes that were like looked like a rabbit coming out of a hat, or like no, I did my my granny had a birthday and I did Noah's Ark, so I just built a cake in the shape of a boat and then made all the little animals out of icing. Um, and yeah, I did a lot of design stuff in school where you know you make like clocks or I made like a doll's house or like I just wanted to make anything creative. It wasn't really just about the more traditional forms of art. I think just any time someone gave me the opportunity to do something where there was a creative window and I'd, I'd push the window. Like I got taken on like a school trip for history and then got told as the homework to you know write about my experience and I just drew a picture. <laughs> <laughs> that's it. <laughs> Luckily, the teacher was was up for that because she displayed the wall, and then the picture went in the middle of the display and made it look a bit more jazzy. But um, yeah, and and like doing English, you know, would be told to like write out poems, and I would just do masses of illustration around them. And um, I think I was really open to to kind of any kind of design, illustration, cake baking, whatever it was. Um, just room to be creative. I really thrived in. That's awesome that uh, that you explored it all and that you had that, that your mom was an artist and encouraged mm -hmm. all that as well because I think that's uh, that's fantastic. Obviously, it served as a good foundation for you into going to yeah. uh, university. And was was it was it easy for you that you had to uh, to pursue art um, into university? Was like yeah, was there so, any other um, choice? I think basically, so again, I don't know, I think in the US particularly, the, the way university works is it's much less specialized, like you just go to a university and there's a lot of scope to do lots of different things when you get there. And in the UK, it's it's much more focused. So you tend to do just one subject at university. And if you do art, you go to an art college or university. Um, and if you do maths, you just go and do maths. And if you do English, you just go and do English or, you know, whatever it is that you specialized in. Mm -hmm. Um so I went to university and did philosophy, politics and economics as my degree. So that's the subjects I was technically studying and ultimately examined in. But while I was there, I kind of approached the art school that was tied to the university and asked if I could use, you know, the art facilities and go to some of the classes. And um, I was really lucky in that they were very open to that. But, you know, I mean, the art communities often are, so it's not, not that surprising. But um, they let me kind of come to to particularly the more traditional classes, which are the ones that I wanted to go to. So I did a lot of life drawing um, and still life and that kind of thing. Cause I think for me, I, I wanted to really just make time in my schedule to make art. And I really enjoyed doing that kind of life drawing stuff when I was in high school. And so the opportunity to continue doing that and to push myself, I guess, a little about my comfort zone um was great and the the tutors in those sorts of environments are quite kind of they'll critique your work and give you feedback and you can learn from it and then I think in my own like free time on my own I could be making like anything creatively but I liked that that school <laughs> sort of setting for those more traditional techniques um 
yeah so I so I did sort of continue with it at university but it wasn't ever an examined part of my course or anything okay. like that technically it was all academic focused yeah interesting so you didn't so you didn't actually go to art school but you benefited from art electives that were that were on campus or nearby yeah, and I guess what was unusual then is that the only instruction or kind of influence I was getting was self-selected modules in very traditional areas <laughs> that were very skill-based. So I think if you go to art college, you'd obviously be experiencing a lot of stuff that was pushing you into more conceptual art or art that's connecting with your emotions or, you know, like these different um, pathways of, of conceptualising art and thinking about it. And for me, because of the way that I, I kind of sided into it out of my academic degree I only did the more traditional skill-based elements um and for me I think it, a lot of it was just setting aside time and space that was completely for art and completely for creativity and um I wasn't looking really to get anything out of it other than that for like just doing it for myself really um I just certainly didn't think I was going to be an artist so <laughs> that wasn't no way the game plan and the kind of purpose behind it at all um, but we had like a tutorial system for uh, our university teaching. So again, like I think it's different at different places. Um, but at my university, it was in kind of you on your own or with one other student with a professor for an hour for each subject each week. And so if I um, was setting the time for the schedule for my tutorials, if I said that I was doing this kind of life drawing class or something, then the professors were happy to accommodate that and to move the class time for me to allow me to go to do it, um, which was really great and really nice. Um, and so, yeah, it was it was by having that kind of fixed structure around me attending the classes, it kind of meant that I could make sure it happened. And I think otherwise, you know, there was a lot of things I was up to and um, busy doing like clubs and societies and all sorts of things that could easily have, um, eroded the time that I would otherwise spend doing more the traditional drawing and, and art and creative things. So it was really great to be able to do that. And I, f I found it interesting when you talk about this on your website that you have, you were able to find that connection between philosophy and mm. art. And uh, it, it's, it's just so interesting that you were able to, that you were able to embrace the two and pull them together in a way that is meaningful to you. Do, do you want to talk about that a little bit? Because I had never yeah, heard of, yeah. of Kant before, um, so I, I was like, wow. Well, it's, it's it's interesting. I mean, like, I find that that sort of writing the about page of a website is <laughs> like a horrific thing to do. <laughs> because it's like, how do I say things in such a brief and written format with no emotion? Um, and yeah, expressing what, I'd, what I wanted to say. So, I mean, um, that was really me kind of talking a little bit to the relationship between philosophy and art in my mind but I think it's much bigger than that really and my whole journey towards becoming an artist is born out of the more academic stuff that I studied at university and that I chose to study at university because I'd been thinking about it a lot and it's a real area of passion for me and particularly really the philosophy but also the politics and economics kind of come into it because it's a big overlap um, and these are subjects which are asking us like these fundamental questions about um, the nature of reality and why humans collectively act the way that we do and structure the things that we do and value the things that we do. Um, and the the kind of Kant part that I referred to on my website is really the area of philosophy that's specifically thinking about art and what is art? What is the difference between something being man-made or being artificial? What is the difference between something being art and nature? Like if there's a rock on the ground outside, it's probably not art. 
If we put it in an art gallery, is it art? If we put it in an art gallery and spray paint it, is it art? Like, where's the line? So these kind of philosophical discussions around what these concepts are and what they mean to us as people and why they matter is aesthetics. And that's an area of philosophy in its own right. But for me, I think these fundamental philosophical questions about why we choose to do the things we do, what the purpose of things are, what the nature of morality is, what makes us happy, what makes us thrive, what gives life meaning um, and connection is born out of this kind of more academic philosophical exploration. And the answers that I have come to to those questions is a big part of what motivated me to really change up my whole adult life towards becoming an artist and living in a different country and having a completely different mindset to um, what I value, what I do, what matters to me, what I want to say with the time that I have here and the way that I connect to other people. And my art is totally driven by all of that, really. Um, from me kind of living a life where I am meaningfully creating things with my hands that I find um, I have a, a strong kind of sense of purpose to uh, me thinking about nature and the importance of nature and particularly the the nature that's specific to New Zealand is really fascinating and I could probably talk for an hour about that and that's probably not what people <laughs> want to hear right here in this space so I'll refrain but um being able to put that in front of people in this country and outside of this country and give it a voice shine a light on it show people the value that's there and our kind of economic political systems don't always value nature as much as I would like them to, <laughs> as much as I think would in the long run for humanity's sake be better. Um, and so it's it's uh, a big part of the motivation for the subject matter that I choose to, to kind of look at in the paintings that I create, um, as well as the, the kind of the specific Kant reference on the website is about the idea that creating something visually uh, that connects with the people that then look at it in an emotional way is the primary purpose of, of what we're doing with art. And so if you make something that when people look at it, they they sort of feel joy and see something beautiful and it's connecting with them in that way, then it's, it's kind of doing its job essentially <laughs> as art. Um, and that's the primary function of creating a visual representation of anything is to, to kind of create that connection with the people that then subsequently look at it. Um, but yeah, it's it's a bigger picture. I think that relationship between philosophy and art for me um, in terms of my whole story. <laughs> well, it's I've never heard someone kind of uh, assemble that marriage. And I, I think it's a really mm -hmm. interesting way to, to look at it. And even in what you were saying there, it was like, oh, okay, that I, I need to, I, I need to put that into my mind and process it a little bit, because I think that's a really interesting way to look at. Uh, I mean, I think it's obvious that we create art to, to generate emotion and generate connection. And, you know, I always tell people that there's a story in what you draw or paint and, and the story may be something that people inherit based on the, images that you've put on paper but or, or canvas but there's also a story as to why you've chosen those and i think people need to hear both right mm -hmm. and um that does help to contribute to this emotion you, you know you do something oh that's beautiful or that reminds me of whatever or um that's so cute or it made me laugh or it made me cry uh i think that's where we struggle as artists is being able to generate that emotion because otherwise it's just it's it's flat right um mm -hmm. And uh, I, I love this connection. I'm going to have to go. I, I was, before we t spoke, I was trying to read up on Kant and it's like, I just don't have the mind space for this right now. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. Can't. It's not something to dip into, that's for sure. Right. Um. <laughs> so I will, I will um, take this uh, 
this point to kind of remind people that there are really good show notes and they'll be along the um, in the bottom in the uh, in the description for the YouTube video. But they're all they'll, they will also be uh, on the website as well. So things like can't uh, I'll I'll point to and uh, some of the yeah. other uh, items that we'll talk about. I'll provide links to everything. So I just want to remind the listener and the viewer now uh, that's where you can find that information. So I I just I'm curious about what happens next. Like so you're going through philosophy uh, and your in your degree and then you're dipping your foot in this extracurricular activity <laughs> to kind of uh, that you feel a need to do. Um, when you walk out of university, what are you thinking at that point? Are you thinking I'm an artist now? Or are you thinking I got to get a job? <laughs> yes, yeah, exactly that. <laughs> I can't forget this. Okay, right, real world. Here we are. Uh, I need a job. Someone's got to pay me so I can live. Um, and yeah, so I mean, when I was at university, I um, kind of did the academic stuff and I did a lot of art. And I think when I look back over my life, however much I sidelined art, it like pushed its way back in. And that, you know, I suppose I thought of it as a hobby, but it was like a very dominant hobby that which I would just be constantly trying to make more time for and spend more, you know, energy on. But no, I, I kind of came to the end of my degree and literally while I was doing my final exams, because in the UK system, it's like all just your whole degree is decided by your final set of exams. Like whether you pass, fail, have a degree or not, you just sit a whole bunch of exams and are absolutely terrified. <laughs> and then you find out whether you've got, you know, a really good degree, no degree, somewhere in the middle. Um, and during that process, I kind of interviewed for a teaching job because uh, one of my friends doing my course was interviewing for a teaching job and was like, oh, I think that this could be a good thing for you to try and do. And um, I thought yeah sure that sounds good <laughs> um and yeah then i i kind of got that job so i fell into teaching i was actually teaching economics just to clarify not art because sometimes people just assume i must have been teaching art um and uh, i really enjoyed like being part of a school teaching i think it's something which i really wasn't sure what i wanted to do um and having gone to school everyone kind of gets what school is and it wasn't too different or intimidating. And I think I really liked that there wasn't the same structure as a lot of office jobs. Like I did internships for, you know, like six week periods in the summer and stuff in, in office jobs. And I really struggled to make it through the six weeks. Like, <laughs> sitting in front of a computer all day, being told that the like boxes on my PowerPoint slide were two millimeters out of line with each other. I was just like, I really, this is not, I can't do this for the rest of my life. I'm going to struggle to get this, do this for six weeks. So I think I realized I needed a job where I was on my feet and I was, it was a bit more open-ended as to what, like, this is the, the goal we're trying to achieve and the job that you're doing, but it's not like micromanaged prescriptive form filling. Um, and teaching seemed like a really good option for that. And obviously there's a lot of creativity at teaching, you know, like you stand in front of a classroom and you've got to get what's in your head into the head of the kids in front of you, hopefully with a bit of enthusiasm mixed in, but there's a real open sort of range of how you might want to approach that. And I really enjoyed the creative challenge of how do I structure lessons and ideas and communicate them. And I created like little activities I say little, like as if they're children. There's like 18 year old kids <laughs> that I was getting to like cut out little flowers and stick them on charts um, to represent the flower market to get an idea of supply and demand. Like, but I really enjoyed that. Um, and, and it was amazing working in a school, working with young people, 
Um, I was, I'm really, I'm still really, really passionate about the academic subjects that I studied. So, you know, it wasn't like, this wasn't something I was interested in um, focusing on. And then, yeah, inevitably, I was still doing a lot of art in my free time. I was living in a house share with people. Um, I lived with a, a friend initially and then, and then moved into a house share with people. And it's like a, like a five bedroom house in the middle of London with five slash six, seven plus boyfriends. Um, <laughs> people living in it who are all like in their early 20s like something out of a sitcom um and I had sort of taken over the kitchen with my acrylic paints and canvases which was the phase I was in at that point and I just my my really great friends who I still love to death um were incredibly accommodating of you know lifting up canvases off the oven so they can make pasta but <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> putting them back again and like the fridge was like a drying rack and <laughs> Um, and then, you know, like they'd go on a night out and come back and everyone would do some 3am painting abstract. <laughs> um, and they kind of embraced it and, and were really patient. Um, and yeah, but, but I think looking back, I could see, you know, it was just fighting its way into my life the whole time. Um, and I was never really going to get away with not doing art in a big way. Um, and then I sold everything that I could find lying around uh, in my cupboard on eBay and scraped together some money to buy an iPad with an Apple Pencil. And that was a real game changer. Because then I could make art anywhere, anytime. I could be super creative. It could be illustration. It could be more traditional. I could be drawing what's in front of me. Um, but I could, I did like a lot of traveling in the holidays when I was a teacher and I could take it with me. And um, I still cling to my iPad and my Apple Pencil desperately. And it's a big part of even how I create the oil paintings that I do now. It's, it's still integral to my process. That's interesting. We're going to have to dive into that a little bit deeper too. Um, I do have a question to, uh, for you about teaching. Did anyone yeah. ever submit a piece of art like you did <laughs> for their homework? No, actually. <laughs> that's interesting. No. Um, I think by the time you're doing because it's the last two years of school in the UK and this I was teaching at a very academic school so they were there was a lot of focus on the exams and stuff I think that was probably like when I submitted that piece of artwork I was a bit younger I was like when I, I was in my early come days. on people um, need the academic pressure <laughs> I don't know how I would have re responded I probably would have been like yeah that's really lovely and great but you do actually have to do the essay <laughs> it's quite an important part of the course right um <laughs> uh but yeah no I think um I talk to my students a bit about art in lessons, just kind of casually. Um, and I did kind of go into the art departments at the school sometimes and do a bit of art, but I never really managed to make that stick because I never ended up just being too busy when I was at work and then I just make art when I got home. Um, and I, I encouraged everyone who, you know, was interested in art to explore that and be creative and be a bit fearless in their creativity and not let it die in the face of them being under academic pressure. Um, but well, yeah, I, no, not, not. I, th I think that would be like, it would just be, I, I'm glad that you shared that because I think, you know, back when I took economics in high school, the people that taught me economics, I think if they told me they painted, I would have mm. just lost my mind because it's, <laughs> it, I didn't yeah. enjoy the subject for, as much as you do. Um, and the teachers that delivered it were um, not that interesting. And so uh, I'm glad that you at least were able to weave even the idea of cutting out flowers and things like that um, in, in what you were doing as a matter of teacher. So I think that's, that's yeah. When cool. um, I was at university, it's actually one of my politics tutors. Um, I had tutorials in his office at another college and he would have like a drying rack across his office with these like paintings with clips hanging on them drying. 
And to begin with, I used to be like, oh, he's like, maybe he's got a kid. Because they were quite, like, childlike drawings. <laughs> um, and then over time, I was like, oh, I think he's making them. Like, I think he just is, you know, this is something he's doing for fun and he's putting that out there. And I think I was lucky that the kind of intellectual environment for all its, its pros and cons was um, really open to that. It was, you know, that level of eccentricity, you might call it, or just people being creative um, was definitely not looked down upon. It was definitely not seen as a bad thing. Uh, but yeah, no, for sure. I think, um, I hope that my students, you know, thought it was nice that I was a three-dimensional person who did more than just teach them. Um, and actually one of my ex-students reached out who was following me on Instagram and said, you know, she's thinking about switching careers and going into art and wanted to talk to me. So I did like a Zoom chat with her. And um, if anybody else out there <laughs> wants to switch careers, I'm like, some of my friends, you know, joke about me being like, it's like a, some kind of cult. I'm like, yeah, do it, quit your job, do something creative, follow your dreams. <laughs> Don't call me if it fails though. <laughs> mm. There's no failure. There is no failure. That's the thing. I think um, there's a lot of constraints and there's practicalities and, you know, you've got to be able to eat and support yourself financially and not be driven insane by the anxiety of, of making all the ends meet in life. But beyond that, the metrics of failure in terms of judgment of other people is something which I think it's really important to notice, but not let it stop you. Because, I mean, when I started out doing art as a, as a full-time project uh i nearly quit so many times because i was like oh no i failed this is a disaster i can't do this like i just i'm kidding myself and this is a joke and i need to go back to doing something boring that i don't love as much um and i really am glad that i pushed through that and so i think i kind of again like anybody out there who's at that point now just don't don't give up do hang in there even if you have to go back to maybe doing it part-time if, if there's pressure on you from other angles um, don't let the dream die completely and think that you are not good enough because I like so many people on Instagram talk about talent and even now I'll get people who'll like message me and they'll be like oh you're so talented and it's like not really like I really don't I'm not a big believer in talent in that way I think talent implies that someone is born with an innate ability that other people aren't and I just don't think that's true I think there's so much scope in art to do different things some of those things are more skill-based than other but the skill-based things are skills you can learn and you can get better at. And yes, if you want to do realism, then you need a really high skill level, but that is mostly born out of spending the time doing it, not being born with an innate ability. And if I show you, you know, things that I used to paint, they're a lot, lot worse than things I paint now. And that's because like now I've had several years of just painting, like, I don't know, 60 hours a week, sometimes 30 hours a week, probably more often. And you get a lot better. And it's not about I'm born with enough talent or not enough talent. And that narrative is, is really destructive and making a lot of people unnecessarily kind of feel like there's a barrier that they can't climb over or there's obstacles that are stopping them from, from pursuing the things that they feel is passionate and, and kind of meaningful. Um, and yeah, yeah. Anyway, rant over. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. I totally agree. I've, I've had other guests on talking about talent as well. And I, I do agree with you. I think talent's a myth. I think the... I think the thing that we need to embrace um, that does make a difference is is that curiosity that we have as a child, because I think all kids are curious in in what interests them, and we tend to lose that as we get older, right? We we think we're being more practical, and we tend to lose that curiosity. I, I think we don't what we don't have as a kid 
is we don't have the tenacity to kind of focus on something and spend time at it. We we don't have that. When you're a kid, it's like, I'm going to do this thing. I'm going to go over and do this thing. We we tend to get better at that as we get older, but then we start to lose the curiosity, the, the, the willingness to try and have fun and all that kind of stuff. And I think I would agree that talent isn't there, but I think there's there's parts of us that contribute to creativity. And sometimes we end up pushing those too far deep, uh, too deep and we don't discover them till later. I didn't start painting and drawing until I was 40. And so I, I hit it real deep and <laughs> it wasn't through, it wasn't until I started drawing with my daughter that I realized, wait a sec, I think I can actually draw stuff and then exploring it. And uh, so I think the words that you just shared about talent and about sticking with it and you know, if you do something, because I was always concerned about if I'm still concerned because I'm nearing retirement in my day job, that if I become a full-time artist and I don't make money at it, does that mean I'm a failure? And I think it is that kind of flip-flop to say, well, maybe just not now. So bring it back to part-time, rescale it, just stick with it. Because it is, it's not about, it's not always about selling your art. It's about that journey that you personally have between the beginning of a piece and the end of a piece that you can't share with anyone else. They can see the the beautiful piece that you did on, on gold with these wonderful, beautiful bluebirds and, and hummingbirds and that, but that journey is yours and will only ever be yours at that end point they could see. And I think it's important that we embrace that it's not about, you know, selling a piece of art for a thousand, two thousand, ten thousand dollars. That helps, but uh, there's a much more to it and we have to make sure that we embrace our creativity as humans, right? Yeah, I mean, I think... Um... I'm in danger of being too philosophical the whole way through this conversation. Um, Please call me out if I do. But like from the the kind of um, what I studied at university and my interest in the more philosophical side of asking questions about economics and politics and and philosophy is that money is um, like a means to an end, I suppose, in my mind. Uh, It's just it's like a system that we use in society for exchanging things and valuing things. And it's also a form of validation. So for me, selling my paintings and getting money is a really good way for me to justify carving out the amount of time and energy I do for painting them and making that kind of a legitimate justified process. And I think that's kind of a big focus for me in terms of how I see the the money-making part of it is that I want to be able to sell them so that I can justify spending enough time making more of them. but I think that the pressure in society is quite, it's like a, I don't know, like infectious and addictive and um, you can get really sucked into this seeking of validation without realizing you're doing it. It's, it's like it, it just part of being human that we're all susceptible to it. And especially on social media, you can find yourself starting out thinking that you're just sharing your art and you're not worried about what other people are going to say or think whether they follow you and then lo and behold you get sucked into it and you start getting a little bit obsessive about I need more followers and I need to be selling it for more money and I need to be like more validation is how I would see that in my mind and so it's kind of keeping that in check and again me like noticing when I've been sucked into sort of as I would see it validation seeking and trying to then step back from that again and park it and move away from it and um, creating the paintings because it's a process that I enjoy that's meaningful for me that I'm saying something that I think is an important thing to say in society um but it's a really really vulnerable thing to create art and so it's not surprising that that urge to seek validation gets tied to it quite heavily and and can be quite powerful and 
um, but not. I don't think it's a very constructive force, and it often leads us to trying to create things that our heart's not really in it. Like if we see an avenue, we're like, oh, but I'll get more followers, more money if I do this other thing that's a bit different than what I actually want to do. You then can find yourself getting pulled away from the reason that you set out to do it to begin with. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's very well said. I, I, and the algorithms, the social media platforms are built around them. Oh yeah, right? so bad. They're just there to exploit you. <laughs> Don't worry, Instagram, I love you. I'll say lots of good things about how you've, you've facilitated my me living my dream as an artist and I'm incredibly grateful and I think social media is really can be a power for good. Uh, but yeah, you just have to be wary of that, that particular aspect of it, yeah. Well, I know that uh, people will, when people hear this, they will have already known, but I did move my newsletter and everything to a different platform to Substack. And I sent out a message to all my current subscribers to say, I'm doing this. This is why I'm doing it. And I lost like 12 people. <laughs> and it's, like, and it's it, there's always these measures in place to help you make you feel worse about yourself, right? And you just have to shrug it off and think, that's okay. It's I, I want to speak to the people who want to hear what I have to say. And we have to be mindful about that always, right? It's a lot of positive talk needed when you're dealing with Instagram and and everything else out there so yeah yeah definitely definitely so on the kind of the money bit the economics and mm. becoming an artist at what point did that happen for you like you were teaching did it yeah. go from teaching to artist like how did that transition happen so <laughs> it's so funny because like for me it's my whole life story really is is all tied in together and so it's how that unfolds in the conversation that we have um I guess, but for me, a, a big um, chapter or, or avenue that we haven't really uh, come across yet is that I struggled loads with my mental health. And I think, you know, one of the reasons I studied philosophy at university is I had real existential angst. Like I had a real disconnection from meaning and purpose and uh, why I was living and what I, you know, it just didn't seem tangibly meaningful to me to be alive when I was a teenager and in my time at university. and. Um, I had a lot of mental health challenges and it wasn't until I was in my early 20s as a teacher that I then was brave enough or educated enough to bother to pursue help and get help for that. Um, and I did get help and I got a lot better, but it was over a long period of time. And during my 20s, I did a lot of therapy and I was on antidepressants for a while. Um, but that process of really dealing head on with my mental health and getting it to a much, much better place led me to start to connect much more with who I am, like the core identity of what makes me me, and to be more self-accepting of that, um, and therefore able to connect with asking myself, what do I really want in life? What is meaningful to me? And I think that led me to realise the answer to those questions was largely making art, spending time with people I love, spending time in nature, um, and living in the middle of London, there were a lot of obstacles to me spending more time making art, spending more time with the people I love, spending more time in nature. So um, initially it was just me going down from a five day a week job to a four day a week job to make more time to, you know, spend more time in nature, spend more time with people, uh, spend more time making art for fun. Um, and making, you know, I sold the odd piece of art to a friend or I did a loads of like digital drawings kind of illustration -y drawings for friends who are having kids where I would like do a kind of kid style drawing and then 
have the the date of birth of the child and their name and then frame it so like when i was a kid we'd get these like little cross stitch things that people made <laughs> with our date of birth on right. them, and then i still have them from when i was born um and then covid hit and i was pregnant and this all happened fast and so i had kind of planned to take time off obviously with the baby and be on maternity leave in the UK it's kind of standard to take a year especially if you're a teacher it's easy for the school if you just do your academic year and they just get someone to fill in for that academic year um and then my husband was going to take some time off from his job and we were going to come out to New Zealand because my parents were had already been living here for a really long time and that spiraled into like full lockdown in the UK I gave birth with Covid so like you know people in hazmat suits in the hospital being like oh, no. <laughs> oh my god and this was like the, the first april of covid this is when it was like kicking off no one really understood it everyone was a little bit like in a state of panic basically driving to the hospital through the middle of london there's like no one there it's like something from an apocalypse film it's just like my husband's like where should we park i was like just pull up the car <laughs> in the middle of the road I don't think anyone's going to do anything about it. Right. Um, so, uh, yeah, we just thought, let's go to New Zealand. I had residency because my parents had moved there when I was a child. So luckily, very, very luckily for us, we had the right to enter the country. And we got on a plane and came to New Zealand. And then um, we just thought, actually, do you know what? We have been through this process over the last few years of reassessing what we value in life. We're now parents. And we don't see a way of it working living in london working as teachers in schools that we can kind of get the time that we want as a family get the opportunity to be outdoors a lot and living in new zealand near where my parents are we could be as we are now living in a kind of semi-off-grid lifestyle block as they call it in new zealand which is like a um small mini farm like a like a large garden slash small farm <laughs> like th three chickens and two cows situation yeah. um and we collect all of our water from the roof it's just rainwater collection we don't have any mains water um and yeah so we have our little piece of paradise um in the middle of nature and we are not constrained by the financial challenges of living in the middle of london um with massive mortgages etc and i can therefore have a go at pursuing art and especially being maternity leave i think i found that a nice little window where it's it's so scary as you say like to to kind of put it out there as like i'm gonna do this and then oh my god i'm maybe gonna fail at this <laughs> by whatever metrics of failure you've set up for yourself but being on maternity leave i was like well i can always write it off as like something i did on maternity leave when i would have been working anyway and it gave me that excuse i suppose that allowed me to to be a bit braver in the face of, of having a go at being a full-time artist um, and then the local rural community out here is like a lot of our artists, a lot of really wonderful, supportive people. Somebody local um, offered for me to do an apprenticeship with them. I had honestly never really painted with oil paints. I mean, maybe for like an hour once back in school, but like I had no idea where it was going with oil paints. And as I'm sure, you know, it's not new to the conversation or podcast, it's quite a scary thing to jump into oil painting. It's like, it seems intimidating technical messy toxic like ah <laughs> so um <laughs> i just went to her studio and she kind of got me started and then i bought my own set of cheap beginner oil paints and uh went from there but it really transformed the quality of of what i could create like suddenly i was like oh wow these this there's a reason everyone 
who does oil painting does oil painting and that it's been going for as long as it has it's so versatile and it's so you can paint with it with fast drying mediums and it's almost like using acrylic or you can use slow drying mediums and blend everything into infinity for months on end or you can which is more what i do use um kind of translucent layers that you build up called glazing and it's almost like doing digital art where i don't know uh, some of you listening will probably do digital art where you create everything in layers so you have like your drawing layer at the very base and then you're building up the colors and then the highlights and the lowlights and the you know detail and everything on top on top on top and i think that's how i approach oil painting it's more almost like my digital drawing than than acrylics um so yeah i can't even remember what the original question you asked me was <laughs> I think you got to where we wanted to be because I think, uh, yeah. <laughs> so your journey to being an artist is, mm. is fairly new. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, and that's why you couldn't find me on YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I became a full-time artist. I can mark it by the age of my daughter. So like three and a half years ago, um, I was doing it part-time and as you could tell from what we've talked about so far kind of constantly doing art in some form or another in my free time throughout my whole life. So I think in that, journey I'd actually developed a lot of skills and things that I bring to the art that I produce now but in terms of it being my main like job focus whatever you want to call it um yeah yeah no not a huge amount of time at all and that's where I think I have to credit social media as being a big component in what has allowed me to get where I have in the sort of short space of time that I have um because yeah again like having not gone to art school it's not like I have a lot of connections in the art world and having moved countries, it's not like I have a lot of connections at all. <laughs> um, but I have a local community of people who are incredibly supportive and um, yeah, like a local artist who who kind of got me to come into the studio and she's a phenomenal oil painter. And then um, the local sort of community run not-for-profit gallery let me exhibit some paintings there. And then, you know, it just gave me a little beginner platform to start off um, a springboard. And then I, yeah, I got into doing Instagram and I think I took the Instagram quite seriously because I did not have any social media accounts. I mean, I had a Facebook account from when I was at university, I guess I would have signed up to that. And, um, I had, you know, used Facebook as someone who uses it to kind of connect with friends a bit, but not very actively and not regularly checking it or anything. And I'd never been on Instagram. If I'm honest, I'd never been, I still have never been on TikTok. <laughs> I have ventured briefly into Twitter and been quite intimidated. Um, but I, I, yeah, didn't know what I was doing, but that meant that I was actively researching and educating myself on how to approach social media. Um, and I did uh, a course with someone who's based in LA on Zoom, who kind of taught me how to make reels and how to approach it and um, her advice for growing your account. And I think what I really liked about it, it wasn't, this is how you use Instagram to make money as an artist. It was more like, this is just how to use Instagram as an artist to put your work out there and connect with other people and make what you're doing connect with the people who are looking at what you're doing. Um, and then my Instagram account, started growing and, and getting a lot of um, people following it and interested and more opportunities kind of came out of that. So um, yeah, it's been a exciting few years, basically. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm, I'm so like, I'm so happy for, it. I didn't realize it was such a short period of time, but your work mm. is incredible. And I would, I would think that you've been doing this for yeah. 
you know, a, a decade and a half at least. Like it just, it looks incredible. And so I, I think that's wonderful to hear that, and, and mental health challenges, it hits us all. I think it's something that we do have to talk more about, that we have to seek the help when we need it. And I struggled a lot as a teenager. Um, some of my best friends had no idea. I, I told a friend of mine, uh, so I'm 56 now, and uh, I told him about, I don't know, six, seven years ago about the things I was thinking about and the stuff that I was going through. He had no idea because, you know, you're teenage boys, like, you know, and you're going out and doing this and that. And in, 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 inside, I was just, I was dying inside. And so... Um, it is it is a struggle, but I'm glad that you mentioned it because I think it's important us for, for people to hear that. Um, and I just sorry, I was leaning back on that because it just it it really hit me personally. Um, yeah. But I wanted to jump ahead again to your art and your work because you were one thing that struck me is is the idea of when you had your first child. I don't know if you have more than one, but that choosing to do oils when you have a young child is probably the hardest thing to do and you know versus drawing or colored pencil or something like that that you can just work on and leave and 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 that kind of stuff um but you said that the person that was tutoring you had their own studio so you could go there and do that was that yeah. the way that you were able to get through that yeah yeah okay. so i mean it was very much like i was really thrilled that someone had reached out to me and invited me to to come and, and work in the studio with them um and then i could just go to this other place and there was in front of me brushes and paints and palettes and someone to answer all the questions i had about oh my god what do i do and someone to help me know how to tidy it up and what to do with the brush at the end of the day and like it just all that intimidating uncertainty and expense was removed for a period of time you know i, I got to ride the bike with the training wheels on and that was just an unbelievable gift that they gave me. Um, and then once you've ridden the bike with the training wheels on, like taking them off and continuing to ride the bikes, just way less of a terrifying prospect. Uh, and it allowed me to also learn and realize what I could do with them, what doors were opening. And that was super exciting and very motivating for me to then kind of continue to pursue that on my own. It's amazing. Uh, I still haven't tried oils, oils yet. I had uh, a guest come on and she sent me a whole bunch of oil paint and, and all the tools and I haven't started yet. I feel like I'm a bit of, perf I guess, a perfectionist where it's like I, I need, to, I just need the right time. I just, <laughs> I need some time to do it because I know they take a while to dry, but I kind of want to get into it and spend like a week doing it. And I intended to do it this summer and life got out of hand. And I just didn't have a chance. So I still want to get to it. So I'm really anxious to, to hear from you. Like what, uh, if we can talk about your tools, I mean, your medium of choice now is oil. Like, are you 100% oil? Oh yeah, 100% oil. Okay. I mean, so as I said, I still use digital art. So yes. um, I do digital kind of drawings. And yeah, I suppose I, in my mind, I create digital art that is my sketchbook. So from like the very large quantity of bad ideas, I mean, I don't actually think they're bad ideas, I'm being, I think, stupid, but um, the, the large quantity of ideas I have, some of which I tend to continue with and some of which I tend to not continue with um, and progress into being actual paintings or get parked. Uh, I do all of it on my iPad and it was a real learning curve. I think it's almost as a bigger learning curve learning to draw 
on an iPad compared to pen and paper or pencil and paper because it's like it, it feels very different like if you imagine like running something smooth on glass you don't have that friction of a pencil on paper which like is a it's such a core part of how you instinctively draw and I've been drawing for years and you know decades that I my entire life I've been alive so learning to adapt to that was a really steeper learning curve but it had no pressure on me I suppose at the time I was learning that um, but I guess all the different mediums that I've explored in my life, I just see something that I haven't done or that I don't do as like things that you don't do seem intimidating and difficult and potentially almost impossible from the outside until you learn how to do them and have go. And then suddenly it's not as difficult as it seems, even like learning to use a new piece of software on a computer or learning to use Instagram for the first time. Like you look at this from the outside, and you're like, oh, my goodness, how am I going to tackle this? This seems I like it beyond me mm -hmm. like I'm not a social media person I can't do this but actually if you take it step by step and you reach out for help from other people who know what they're doing and you listen to that help and aren't afraid to have a go usually everything I've ever then made myself have a go at has worked out and in hindsight seems much simpler and more straightforward than I anticipated it would be so I guess I have this sort of blind faith going into something <laughs> Um, that like if I just just throw myself into it it will sort of not be as mystifying and complex as I anticipate it will be and so far that's largely worked out to be the case including with oil painting um, but yeah it's just just got to go for it <laughs> yeah it's it, it is a process and I know that you know I've talked about the fact that almost everything I create there's a point where it's ugly and I hate it and I just you know I don't yeah. want I don't want to do Always. this one anymore yeah yeah I'm done Always. with you and then <laughs> I think what I've learned is to push through that and just yeah. observe the process. Um, you know, even when I'm looking at some of your pieces here, I think the, the part that stands out to me is the depth that you have in how you've rendered a lot of the birds that you do. And so uh, that's a tricky thing to do. I find because I'm trying to do it is to, to achieve that depth. And when I say depth, I mean that, you know, when a, when a bird has its wing, um, and it's trying to clean itself or whatever the case. And some of the feathers are sitting much higher than the others. And so they project a bit more shadow than the others that you've really nailed that you get that sense of depth, not through color, but through value. And you're able to mm -hmm. achieve that really just brilliantly with oil. And uh, I really enjoy looking at your pieces because there is so much depth to them. There's so much, um, you really play well with value. The colors are amazing. Um, but I'm really enamored by the values that you've been able to render. And I think that's um, that kind of stuff takes a lot of time. And it's back to your point about looking at something and going, oh, I don't know how to do that. People could look at that with a, with a wing that has 60 feathers on it and think, how am I going to do the shadow so strikingly on those three versus the other ones? And it's just a matter of breaking it down, creating a process, and then building it up again. And, and you've done it well. And I think that whilst oils seem intimidating to get going with, they're then easier to create the outcome you want with. Like, and I've listened to some of your other um, guests talking about, you know, their transition into oils and the, their frustrations with acrylics. And I literally was speaking to another New Zealand artist recently about this who's an acrylic painter. And you can kind of get frustrated by the limitations of other mediums that aren't oil painting, whether it be like watercolor or acrylic, or, because they are more limited. But with oil painting, there's more scope for it to, to do what you want it to do. And so like you were saying about the values, for me, it's something that I find, I, I've always found a bit intimidating. When I was at primary school, 
I did a painting of a flower pot, which was like one of the first sort of colour paintings I did in a you know school setting that a teacher was assessing. And the value was so bad. I mean, it, it looked terrible. <laughs> like the, the kind of form of it was fine and the tones of the colours were okay. Uh, they weren't great either, to be honest, but um, coloured people also used to being quite forgiving with. But the values is what makes something look like real or not real. It looks like, it looks like the thing that you're representing or it doesn't. Now sometimes it's intentional. People aren't making it look like the thing that they that is in front of them. But if you wanted to make it look more of the realism um, kind of genre of art, uh, the value is, is absolutely critical to that. And um, for me, when you're painting with acrylics or watercolours, I, I'm really not knowledgeable about watercolours particularly, so forgive me if I get that wrong, but you have to try and nail it from the beginning. Because if when I was painting with an acrylic paint, if I get it slightly wrong, then I've just got to go over it. And yes, you it dries fast, you can go over it, but that's quite a time consuming, frustrating process of like going over it and going over it. With oil paints, you can build. And so I guess a lot of the digital art that I did allowed me to see this way in which you can just keep tweaking rather than writing over from scratch and so if I did the shadow under a wing by kind of mixing the paints so that they're slightly darker colour to represent the light and it wasn't dark enough then I can put a translucent layer of black oil paint mixed with a clear oil medium very thin over the top and if it's still not dark enough once that dried another layer until I get the tone that I think represents how the light should look. And, and I can see what I'm doing as I'm building the layers and I, can, and I tend to do everything in quite incremental bits because I know it's easier to kind of add a bit more than take it back. But it's that flexibility with oil paints. And that's why I love glazing, like building these layers, because you can look, do a layer and see how it looks and do a layer and see how it looks. And then you decide when to stop. And it's, it's like less of a commitment, I guess, than I found acrylics. Like, <laughs> You have to there's such a commitment to every mark that you make right. because usually i mean I, I didn't ever build up layers when i was painting with acrylics that was it then and if you're not 100 happy with it you just sort of feel a bit frustrated whereas oil painting you can just keep like editing and amending and slightly adding and slightly adapting and slightly changing and some bits i just paint over the whole section because it's disaster that still but happens but less you must get to a point where you look at a piece and you're trying to you know, make lift the wings off the paper by throwing a shadow below them and, and and thinking, if I just did this in Procreate, I could add a layer and I can just play with the opacity until I get it right. And it saves yeah. you like 10 or 15 steps. It's completely different, but it's the same approach that you're yeah, doing. Yeah, Yeah. And I guess what I'm doing is I'm adding like 5% each time. <laughs> That's right. Capacity yes. Until I'm like, oh, it's 45%. That's the right amount. Like, exactly. <laughs> Um, and it's not, I don't, I think if you only, if you always tried to do shadow through that glazing approach, you, you could end up with the tones of your colors going a bit too gray. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes you, particularly depending on like, if you've got some of the birds that I paint have feathers that are quite metallic. And so when the light bounces into a shadow, you get quite a vibrant color, but it is still in the shaded part of the bird. And so then I'm quite careful to try and get a vibrant tone of the color and not have black translucent layers on top of it. But that I just learned through experimenting. It's just like learning basically and having a go and adapting. Yeah, and I think that's that's where I think a lot of starting artists gets a struggle a bit is that they tend to look like if they're using a reference photo, they treat it just as a reference photo. Like they're trying to replicate that. And what photos tend to do is they kill the shadows, they kill the detail. And it's being able to expose that as an artist. So you can use a reference photo 
but it's being able to understand that if you just put black under the, you know where the wing meets the belly it's going to be black and it's going to look flat and so being able to as you say like with, with the way you're doing it through glazing you're able to then incorporate the color of the wings on the belly um as it falls under the sh uh, as it falls under the wing and still respect that without it going completely black right and uh th that's um, that's, I guess, a wonder and a wonderful use of oil. But it's something that I think a lot of people fail on is they just go too too dark. Like they want to, they want to, especially even in watercolor, they want to use a black paint or they want to overuse like a Payne's gray or a neutral tint. Um, and then they kill the color that was there. And it's unfortunate. But yours are just like, you could see the details sitting under the wing. You could see the color that's sitting in the shadows. It's brilliant. Yeah, and I think something which um, I because again just stop me if i start going too heavy on the oil painting here because i'm worried that we're gonna end up losing people who are just not into oil painting but when you're painting with oils something i realized and i learned a bit when i did the apprenticeship um was when you put one color on top of another it's not the same thing as mixing those two colors together and then creating a new you know that color of paint that is that mixed together so if i have black and then i paint like a translucent blue over it versus if i have white and paint the same translucent blue over it that what it looks like is wildly different. And if I have a bright blue and then I paint trans blue, translucent blue over it, it looks even like the third different way of looking at it. Um, and so it, sometimes with some birds, I will start with black gesso as the background and sketch in white and then paint from the black up to the highlights. And other birds, I'll start with a white background and then kind of put in both the highlights and lowlights as I go, depending on you know what the image is and how it's going to come out. Thinking about... Um, when I'm looking at a, like, let's say a reference photo, if um, like I've been painting some flowers as part of the painting I'm working on at the moment, where you can imagine the leaf of a flower is slightly translucent. Imagine like a really bright pink flower that's slightly translucent, but it's got like an outer layer of the petal that's a bit like got some like white detail like on it, mm -hmm. if I'm describing this very well. Yes. But so what you're really looking at as a human being is light coming through the petal that's making the pink glow, but with a more opaque dots of white sitting on the surface of that and so for me creating that i think about okay well if i have like the white background of the gesso with some translucent pinks that represent that light literally going through it like the light in the room of the painting is going to go through the pink paint that's translucent hit the white background and bounce back through it so it's like looking at pink stained glass with a white background behind it Mm -hmm. And it's going to like have a slight glow quality that represents the sunlight coming through from behind but where those white dots are it's a bit more opaque so adding that those white opaque dots as more opaque white paint at the end, not perfectly white because it's actually a bit gray, but um, it, it re like recreates the way that the light's working in real life that gives it a, a much richer quality than if you just were to paint like pixel by pixel the exact color, <laughs> like for like mixing the paints as you go. Um, so for me, I think thinking a lot about how the light moves through the layers of paint that I've created and what it's bouncing off in the process of doing that has really helped me improve the quality of the images that I'm creating. And um, yeah, it gives them that that like added, you know, just yeah, just less flat, I guess I'd call it like added richness. And I'm sure they're much more brilliant in person, but New Zealand's a bit of a drive for me. So, <laughs> so far. <laughs> <laughs> so the um thing i want to ask you about is is your tools uh that you're using now i always like to kind of venture into this um let's save the gold for a little bit later but yeah that's a whole thing <laughs> <laughs> uh 
But I'm wondering, uh, like, do you do do you work on Birchboard? Are you working on Canvas? Um, maybe let's start with that. Yeah. So I work on Board. I know some artists that use Gold that work on Canvas. I'm really nervous of that. Sorry, fly in my face. Um, and I'm nervous of that. I think because for me, I like especially with the glazing and everything, I'm very wary of like there's a lot of layers. Like from me priming with a lot of primers <laughs> through to doing the gold process, through to painting on top of the gold, through to the glazing on top of that, through to be varnishing. Like there's a it's it's not ever actually very thick, but in my head I'm just very wary of all these layers and that the the flexibility of canvas makes me nervous that if in the future someone somehow was that canvas was to stretch too much or move too much that those layers might crack or they might be compromised so i liked that um a board is is more solid and that gives me i'm a bit obsessed with how like archival you might call it but how like long lasting the physical object i've created is 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 the more colloquial way of thinking about it um and i think that for me after the research i've done for what I'm creating, I like the idea of a physical bit of board that I've painted on top of that I can protect very thoroughly so that it's UV proof, waterproof, humidity proof, relatively heat proof. Um, and, you know, when we've all died from climate change, my paintings will just be floating in the middle of the ocean, totally unharmed. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so that was, that was one of the reasons for choosing board. The other one is that I, I mean, I've always really liked working with wood when I started uh, three and a half years ago, I used to use um, like native woods from old pieces of furniture that I would then cut like a bit of wood and sand it and do like a woodworking process. So I'd take a, an old bit of wood from like a tabletop, cut it down to size, sand it back, varnish it, seal it, like treat it as an object almost. And they were quite thick pieces of wood that were quite heavy, but the paintings were very small. Um, and then transitioning from that into more like just commercially available wood, which I have to confess is, you know, not ideal, but um, it's more practical uh, using like more modern forms of wood board. Um, but I think I got used to painting in oils at the beginning on this very smooth, highly sanded wooden surface, which is very different from canvas when I've like dabbled a little bit of canvas, like the texture of it really throws me off because I'm not used to it. And I imagine if I got used to it, I'd probably get into that. But mm -hmm. um, I like having my like, perfectly smooth <laughs> surface that I'm starting with and then any texture that I want I'm intentionally creating on top of that uh, rather than than being feeling like I have the texture of canvas as a starting point that I have to kind of commit to and how many like whether you're going black or white gesso how many layers are you putting down oh yeah so right I start with, I've got, for the people who are listening on audio, I will do my best to describe, but I have brought a couple of things with me for show and tell for okay. the video. Um, so, sorry, everything's like industrially sized for me at this point because <laughs> I'm producing quite a lot of stuff. So this is what I call G GAC100. I don't really know what the, like, if there's a more technical name, but it's uh, produced by Golden, but I'm sure there are other companies that produce it too. Um, and it's just in a primer. So um, it's an acrylic primer that's going to take the wood board and it's going to make it like waterproof and um it's going to it's going to adhere very well to the wooden board and it's going to adhere really well to the gesso that's then going to sit on top of it so it's mm. like almost a glue between the gesso and the wood um and so i start out with that i use rollers for my priming instead of brushes because again i'm obsessive about the textures that are underlying my paintings uh, especially underlying the gold because it will show every bit of texture. So if I do brush strokes for priming, the gold is going to show those brush strokes very clearly. Um, so yeah, rollers, put that on, um, three very thin coats 
if I am time rich and patient <laughs> to slightly <laughs> thicker coats if I'm in a panic um, and letting them dry again between the layers and then gesso on top of that. So the gesso, I will normally do white gesso or black gesso. And if I want a color that isn't white or black, I will do white gesso and then put an acrylic color on top of that um, for like changing the tone or I will do the gold, then oil paint white, then oil paint a translucent color, then the bird. So just it just depends really. Um, mm. But yeah, I'll, it's very like some art that people create and that I have created in my life is very free flowing. You just sort of start with a canvas and something happens. And mine is like methodically planned. <laughs> like, it's like, <laughs> this is, the, these are the processes. And I don't think of it that way because the process is happening the same every time. So for me, it's just a process rather than a plan. But I, when I start telling other people about the process, it's I've come to appreciate quite a pre-planned structure of like this is what this part of the, the kind of process needs to be in order to create the, the ultimate outcome I want um so yeah and then gesso like any gesso I mean I just use again like industrial <laughs> pots of gesso um that I get from art supply stores uh and then um yeah the gold I will um so yeah again like I'm kind of wary that almost maybe no one listening to this actually uses gold so there might yeah be I think it would be good to <laughs> Maybe explain, maybe explain why um, you chose to do it and then, yeah, okay. And, and then how you buy it, how do you apply it? Um, maybe mm. you can talk about that. Oh yeah. So, um, the deciding to use gold, I think, um, a lot of experimenting and ideas and I tend to find I have like hundreds of ideas and then some of them stick and most of them don't. And the gold, it was an idea and it's one that I stuck with. So I, um, was really interested in kind of as we were talking about how the light bounces through the paint and obviously if you have gold and then you put translucent layers on top of that it's very different because it's super reflective so you get loads of light bouncing back and I was quite interested in exploring that and that was maybe like the kind of starting off point for using the gold um, and I was using silver a bit at the beginning as well um, which removes the yellow tone of the colour obviously um, but it's it's silver is it tarnishes a lot. Like once, this is the thing, metals are like a whole other material to get your head around. <laughs> but for me, I was like, again, another thing I don't know about, let's just learn it. And I'm sure it will demystify itself in the process. Um, so yeah, gold and other metals that you could apply to something like board is actually a really ancient technique of what is called gilding and the people who do this mm -hmm. in the world of, of applying metals to things. Um, and you have these really, really thin sheets of metal that I don't make at all <laughs> that you buy um, and then you transfer them onto the object and then they cover the object so if you look back at like historical frames or pieces of religious art or you can see loads of examples where in history people have made objects or paintings using this technique and uh, it can make something look like it's made of solid gold when it's not. So if you like have something that's gold plated, that's essentially the same thing that I'm doing. Uh, but I'm just doing it to a flat surface. So it becomes part of the image of a painting. Whereas you could do it to a three dimensional object like a frame and it'll look like it's a frame made out of solid gold when actually it's just a thin layer of the metal on top. Um, I use 24 karat gold, which is basically just the purest form of the actual metal gold. And one of the reasons that gold historically has been very valuable to humans is because it's completely inert, which basically means it doesn't react with anything. So if you leave it in the sun, in the ocean, mixed in with some acid, like you can do whatever you want to it and it's not gonna 
impact the gold. The gold's not going to have a chemical reaction. It's not going to tarnish, it's not going to discolor, it's not going to like suddenly go orange, <laughs> like other than the color of the, the gold. Um, whereas most other metals, like so classically copper, I imagine even if people don't realize they know this, they will know this. So if you have something that's copper and over time it oxidizes, it goes green. And you can often see that like turquoisey green alongside copper uh, because that's the natural process that, op that copper will change color to. So using 24 karat gold, um, one of the things I liked about it is that it, it doesn't really matter what materials I use it with. I don't have to overthink that because it's going to like be completely unreactive. So it's very safe to work with as long as I'm doing a process where it's securely um, adhered to the structure underneath and the paints, oil paints, well, just normal oil paint with normal oil paint mediums will go straight onto gold very happily as long as you let your oil paints dry and cure properly, um, then adhere to the gold. So you've got a, a sort of strong permanent structure there. Um, and yeah, so I was interested in the light kind of playing with the gold and reflective surfaces of the metals. And then I think also for me, I, my parents have been involved in conservation in New Zealand for a long time. And it's something therefore I have inevitably come to know about, because I don't know if anyone has parents who are interested in things, but attempting to not know about the things your parents are interested in is, <laughs> is a battle that you might be <laughs> struggling to win. Um, so it was infectious and I kind of became interested in that too. Um, and I wanted to kind of use the art I was making to shine a spotlight on the native birds in New Zealand of the, the kind of environment here, of the conservation efforts. And from my philosophical, economics-y, academic background, the concept of where we place value in society being like we value money and we value gold and we value jewelry and we value crowns and there's this core identity in western society but to us all societies pretty much globally not just western that that gold and jewelry and um, money are, are really valuable things to us and me i think there's obviously this equivalent significant value in nature that like there are so many unique species in new zealand many of which are in danger of becoming extinct and if we don't recognize as as a human society the value of these and prioritize that in the way that we do things we will lose what those amazing unique species are and what they have to offer and the beauty that they represent and the, the history that they were you know the magic as i see it of them and so it's like taking this thing which is gold and beautiful oil paint colors and people go oh that's beautiful like i recognize value in this because that's what we've kind of culturally have come to identify as being valuable. But then they're like, what am I looking at here? I'm looking at a native bird of New Zealand. I'm looking at nature. I'm looking at, and then they're like, oh, but that is really beautiful. And so I'm trying to create this connection, I suppose, where people have this emotional response to my paintings and they're unifying the sense of value, importance and beauty between gold and, and kind of colors of gems and jewelry and these, you know, man-made things with nature and the representation of what I'm putting into the kind of imagery of the concepts of my, my paintings. Um, so yeah, I think that was the, that was the thinking behind um, creating the images that I have, which are these bright colors sitting next to gold that are very jewel-like in the imagery. So when you're putting the gold leaf down or, or the gold mm. down, are you having to set that with some paint or something to seal it to work on top of, or do you go straight to oil? Yeah. So again, this was like, so as with starting anything new, um, I think it's always good to just find a way of doing it that you feel, you know, able to have a go at and then, then adapting that. So 
I just started out um, with processes where you have quite a simple application of a special substance that you that that's like it's just there's so many different ways of doing this I'm trying to generalize but basically you get a, 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 an appropriate substance that you can buy you put it on top of completely dried gesso or acrylic either is okay um and then wait the appropriate amount of time at the appropriate temperature which all sounds mystifying but it's honestly no more mystifying than like baking a cake like it's just time temperature like following the recipe on the instructions of the thing that you bought um and then much more difficult is transferring the physical metal onto that um which is finally you're dealing with something insanely and intimidatingly expensive which is why like at the beginning i you know use silver that's less expensive and i played around with imitation gold although some of the cheaper metals are harder to work with so it's a weird sort of balance of like it's less terrifying because it's a cheaper material but it's actually then more difficult to do um, whereas the pure gold's the most forgiving by far um, and then yeah you just apply it and then um you're then you're good to go really you just oil paint straight on that and then you need to like not get oil paint onto the gold because if you do the oil paint's quite heavy it, you either have to commit to that mark being made or you have to make that mark into something or if you try and lift it off the gold will come off and if you patch up the gold you will see the patch like when you apply the gold it you can't like <laughs> you'll be you it's very um it's not a forgiving substance like if you try and change a bit you'll be able to see very clearly where you've patched it up and so um yeah it's it's probably the more difficult thing so you, to, to kind of get your head around so you basically turned it into a watercolor painting at that point exactly yeah <laughs> so no more scary than a watercolor painting precisely there we go but I'm, te I'm too terrified for watercolor painting. <laughs> right. I'm like, how do people do this? Every mark you make is like there forever. Um, yeah. But I'll yeah, just, I suppose. I'll just wrap my boards in gold <laughs> and I'll go that route instead. <laughs> exactly, yeah. yeah. So, but you, you, see, you get used to that quite quickly. Right. I'm just careful. <laughs> so uh, when, you, like, obviously we're going to think this is expensive. Like, can you give us a sense of for uh, yeah. a certain size so, of how much it is? Um, so I used the, the first pieces I started out doing with 30 centimeters by 30 centimeters. Uh, so like pretty small pieces of art and, um, doing one of them was, so this is where we now have a lot of currencies to play with here. So like 200 New Zealand dollars, which would be about a hundred UK pounds, which now I'm dangerously unaware of what the exchange rates would so be. So I think we're, we're usually US dollars. I'm not sure about US dollars, Canadian dollars, Canadian we're dollars? usually a double US pound or uh, British pounds. So Oh perfect. So the same as New Zealand dollars. Yes. Yeah, so like two hundred. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh that's easy. I had no idea. That was For basically the same as New Zealand. Yeah, I think I mean and two hundred Canadian dollars, you're talking hundred and fifty, hundred and sixty dollars US. Um yeah, yeah, exactly. so that would yeah, be thirty by thirty. Right. Yeah. One layer. And one layer you're gonna have holes in your layers. Like you, one layer of very thin gold leaf, there's no way you're gonna get it to perfectly cover every oh, patch of so that. How many layers? So so if you're working with 24 karat gold, you can just patch up the layers and it is forgiving enough that you probably won't see it as long as you haven't taken any gold off. So you've just like, sometimes when you're applying the gold, it'll float away. <laughs> it's literally, I could do demonstrations, there'll just be like gold flying everywhere. Um, but yeah, if there's a little gap, let's say between two bits or a bit that like didn't get down, then you can just put another bit on that and it will, like if you put a layer of 24 karat gold on top of another thin layer, it will literally like glue back together. Like the gold is so soft as a metal, it will just, as long as you apply, so a bit of pressure, like 
um, you need like the equivalent of baking paper. Like you get these wax little sheets of paper that it comes with, but you don't obviously want to just put your finger on it and press down. <laughs> you want to like put the gold down and then the wax paper on top and then rub on the wax paper gently. Um, and that will like stick it down. Um, yeah. I'm not so scared of oils now that you're talking about. <laughs> that is the thing. Um, and like, people are like, oh, but, you know, if you tell people how to do it, then like, isn't that giving away your secrets? And I'm like, oh, that is just no, not my philosophy at all. Like everything that I have learned, I have learned from, you know, other people out there. There's nothing that I do that I have invented from scratch. Like, So it's just passing on and sharing knowledge and the tools and skills of creativity. I, I think there's so much value in, in people being open and making them accessible for other people to have a go at. But definitely doing the the kind of working with metal and the gilding part of it um, is a real learning curve. It's it's not very straightforward. Like oil paints, I really encourage people to just be brave, go in, do it. You will find it so much easier and more thrilling than you expect. Um, but yeah, I, I would think very carefully about doing the, the kind of gilding stuff, uh, unless it's something that you are really interested in pursuing or just do it in a very free, fun don't you know don't just don't expect the first few times you do it for it to work out <laughs> imagine it will um and be prepared to use a lot of materials in a very open-ended way and, and you know it'll look how it looks <laughs> um but yeah it's, it's a steeper learning curve and um a more stressful one just because it's they're quite expensive materials to be working with so it's, it's a bit intimidating to be playing around with um, whereas you know again and the oil paints i know someone else i think on one of your podcasts said this but like really high quality oil paints are great but also really not very high quality oil paints are almost as great <laughs> like right. i use really high-end ones because i'm doing what i'm doing at the level i'm doing it at but i started out with just student quality oil paints and it's not a dramatic difference between them and really high-end ones like don't I've, I've had people ask me is it better to go and buy a small number of colors of really high quality oil paint or to go out and buy lots of different colors and a lower quality oil paint and my personal advice would be to buy more colors and a lower quality oil paint um it's some limitations in being a less good quality oil paint but mostly it's much harder to mix exactly these like vibrant colors and different colors that you can buy than it is to to kind of recreate the the quality of impact like the texture and um tone of the colors that are from the more, more expensive paints and some of my favorite colors because like if you buy like viridian green from different brands and different qualities within each brand they do look slightly different and some of my favorite ones are like from the less fancy ranges like some of the super vibrant really lovely rich colors i still use are from like lower quality ranges of oil paints mm um so yeah that's but that's I, I appreciate there's a lot of people who probably really disagree with me on that so well, it's funny that's my suggestion <laughs> it's funny you mentioned viridian green because i it's my least favorite green <gasps> but i i think oh, <laughs> i should have i should have led with that um and i i think it's just because <laughs> what i create where i live it's not a as common a color when i look at the stuff that you're doing i see it much more often but mm -hmm. that's not the stuff i'm creating um so i'm typically looking for um you know the the more earthy greens a hooker's green like things like that right so but uh i just I, it's so it's such a potent green yes you can always tone it down but trying to mix something to be more potent is i find very difficult to achieve yeah. so yeah. i like super potent paint colors <laughs> like and then i can i can bring them back down a bit <laughs> so uh I often see you painting with a really tiny brush. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I 
I've got for people who are on the visual watching this, um, I've got some here to show you because I get asked so much about this. Um, but for people who are listening again, I will do my best to describe what I am holding up. So these are my brushes. Again, I'm one for the, like, you see the little, okay, yes. for people who are watching, there's little red bands around the top of the brushes and the ones with the black bands around the top are the higher quality real hair versions that are like insanely expensive and the ones with the red bands are cheaper. Um, and I would advise, or at least for me, using slightly less expensive brushes, um, albeit these are still not that cheap, um, but then feeling less stressed about like if I wear the brushes out pretty quickly, which I do, then I get through quite a lot of brushes. Um, and often what I'll do is I'll like do the really fine details with a fresh brush that's in perfect condition. And then if it's getting a bit worn out, I'll park it. And then when I'm doing something that's like a less detailed layer of glazing, I'll go back to my slightly worn out brushes mm -hmm. and use them for that again. So they kind of, the brushes get downgraded in their, <laughs> in their status over time until they're like, okay, this one's, well, actually I say this one goes in the bin, but sometimes if I haven't managed to screw them up by letting them dry with too much paint on them, they're really frazzled ones are great for doing like the texture of moss or something so like i did this really big painting with loads of moss in it and like doing the highlights on the moss you kind of want like a few different hairs right. just that have gone totally static um so yeah that's my brush journey but yes they are these very small brushes i tend to use da vinci micro nova is what these are called because okay. uh, these are the ones that i can get in christchurch new zealand where there is very limited options available um new zealand also doesn't really have online shopping in the way that most of the western world has has kind of created so for me the local art supply store in christchurch is like i get what they've got and if i want something else then i've got it imported from another country which is a bit of a project um the that I held up a packet that had four paintbrushes in it. In that packet of four paintbrushes, there is a range of sizes from 170 5 0 to 170-20 0. Um, and really, you'll notice that the number that changes there is the one just before the slash 0 uh, from 5 to 20. And as that number gets higher to 20, the brush tip gets smaller. And the smallest one they make that I have come across is the 20 slash 0. And that one I use for my really teeny tiny details. And if it's not uh, small enough, then I will get scissors and cut it down. Nice. <laughs> Make it smaller. Um, but yeah, they are they are like very. Hold up to the camera. That's gonna be out of focus. But yeah, really small um, brushes. And I obviously do work a lot with bigger brushes for the base layer of things. But I work a lot with um, the smaller layers, and and sometimes for the feathers on the bird, even though I'm doing glazing i'll start with a small brush for even the basic layers because when you've got lots of translucent layers with that tiny hair texture in them mm -hmm. and you build it up you get that richness of like just loads of little lines going back into the depth of the paint like behind one layer 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 and that like that sort of um texture it comes across as detail and it like it, it looks realistic and interesting and it means that like it there's inevitably going to be slightly different colors and the paints in the different layers and slightly different mark making and you get that um uniqueness to every like little tiny area of detail of the painting where otherwise you could end up with a section which looks a bit repetitive and i suppose real life birds are not you don't tend to get that sort of real uniform repetition right um so yeah and what's hard when i created instagram reels is um that <laughs> me painting with my tiny little brush in tiny little sections of the painting 
doesn't even if i did like some time lapses you'd have to watch time lapses for insane number of hours <laughs> to get like any kind of impact of like me actually creating something and so what was really clever that i learned on the course that i did is that i will just do like snippets over time right. rather than time lapses and that works a lot better um but what you do lose as a result of that is the glazing like you can't really tell i don't think from watching my reels in Instagram that I am glazing because you don't, you never see the progressive layers being built up. You kind of just see the progress of me moving across the image. Right. Um, and when I've tried to capture that, it looks like the image isn't truly really changing. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's hard to convey that, but that's okay. Like it, I don't think it you know matters too much. People seem to still enjoy what I can offer them in the, the content of the reels that I create, so. And your reels are brilliant. So if anybody wants something, <laughs> But I'm just following someone else's recipe as again, like there's no, I don't, I don't claim to any kind of genius in the approach that I'm taking there. I just did a course and I followed the instructions of that person and I look at what other um, artists on Instagram are doing and I am just following the recipe of creating a reel. Um, yeah, which has, you know, so far worked pretty well. Can you speak to the glazing? and yeah. maybe how you do it, at, how you do that and more specifically like what material you're using to do the glazing like how are you um are you mixing yeah. it into the oil paint so um for the glazing the the kind of basic idea is that you take your oil paint and it comes out of your tube i use glass as my like palette uh just partly because i had it to hand and uh, i really like that um it's like it's yeah i can just scrape the paint off once it's dried and then use the glass again and it's a really smooth surface and i just like working with it i found um if i use something that's like papery it'll absorb some of the oil out of the paint and that drives me insane and i just don't really like plasticky stuff as much as i can avoid it so i find glass is really nice um so i put a little bit of my paint onto the glass uh and then some oil medium which is literally just like what oil paints are is pigment which is largely traditionally powder form mixed in with oil of some kind like linseed oil or it could be um like liquid is a really common one that artists use that i use a lot um that there's loads of different oils out there that people use you could literally use vegetable oil but i imagine it would take an insane amount of time to dry <laughs> um so I hope don't, don't just get vegetable out of your cupboard and start mixing it with with paints um but yeah if you buy um just go into a, an art store and buy like oil for oil paints like oil medium is what it will be called there's loads of different ones to choose from and the things to think about when you're choosing one is like it doesn't have any color to it so like liquid's got a slightly yellow tinge to it the traditional liquid original um and uh some of them are, are more clear some of them are more yellow um and then think about how long it takes to dry so like some of them are slow drying like linseed oil is quite a slow drying one versus some of them are quicker some of them have more viscous and some of them are thinner so if you want to do really detailed bits, you, I would like to create a texture that's almost like ink, like very thin, but quite opaque for very detailed bits. Um, and then if you want uh, a kind of thicker texture, that can be fun to work with as well um, for, for kind of different stuff you might be doing. Um, but yeah, you just play around with them, like, you know, or just talk to the person who, you know, is in the store. So, so I, this is the real life shopping experience. You go on the internet, I suppose. <laughs> if you go on the internet, just maybe get some like liquid original because that's a pretty safe bet to, to start out with. It's quite fast drying as well, which if you're not used to oils, is probably going to be what you are used to. <laughs> um, so fast drying might feel more familiar to you. Uh, and then you put a little bit of that on your glass or, or palette. 
Um, again, if you've watched my reels, you might see sometimes for me, I like chug a massive amount, <laughs> but you might want to start with a smaller amount. Um, and then you're just mixing it in and all you're really doing is thinning the pigment of the paint so that you end up with a clear um, oil that has a very a much smaller amount of pigment in it and is therefore inevitably translucent or transparent almost um, with a bit of color in. And then when you paint that on top of your gesso to begin with, and then on top of the layers underneath, you're building up lots of um, layers of this sort of translucent oil paint, a little bit like you've created lots of thin pieces of colored glass and stacked them on top of each other. Or if you don't digital art, thin layers of translucent image in your, in your you know, Photoshop, Procreate, whatever you use image um, on top of each other. And depending on the order that you do them in depends on like what color and tone and the way the light comes through it. And that's the fun thing you can play around with. Um, but like, again, if you've done digital art, if you had like a translucent blue layer and a translucent pink layer and you put them both at 50% like op opacity. So someone who doesn't do digital art, like 50% see-through. <laughs> right. And then you put the blue on top of the pink and then you swap them around and put the pink layer on top of the blue layer. Like it will, they will look different. Like the purple you come out with will be a different purple and it will have a different feel to it. Especially if one of either the blue or the pink is, is um, like a, a paler shade than the other one. Um, and it's the same idea. And again, like people who are not into the digital art, if you imagine having like pieces of um, see-through tracing paper and putting a bit of color on them and then putting one on top of the other or flipping them over, um, you, you'll get a different effect. And so on the whole, like a good starting point is to to put the darker things first and then build the paler colors on top but you will also find that that's a rule you don't want to consistently stick to and like i was talking about with the flowers i was painting earlier um uh the the kind of gray like white but in the shade gray dots were darker than the tone of the pink even though they went on the top because they were more opaque and that's the kind of effect i was trying to create of the thing that i was representing from real life um but yeah that is the the basic idea of the glazing a liquid is a good starting one because it dries fast, especially if it's not too cold. Like temperature really affects how quickly they dry. So if I am in a rush to get things done for an exhibition, my husband gets really annoyed because I have the heat up in the room in my studio and it's really warm in there. It's like tropical because I'm like getting everything to dry so I can do the next layer. Um, and if I am working on something and I want to not do any painting for a day because I'm doing something else and I don't want it to dry, then I will like get it as cold as I can. And if it, you know it's the winter here, I'll just open the window and shut the door and turn off all the heat into the room. Um, and a really good fun tip is um, that I will, if I don't want my palette to dry, put it in the fridge or even the freezer just the whole bit of glass with the brushes on it nice. just goes in the freezer and it will come out exactly as you put it in, but cold. <laughs> so how do you seal your work when you're done? Are you doing it differently yes. because you're using gold? So another tool from my Mary Poppins bag. <laughs> yes. um, so for the listeners, uh, I am now holding in front of you a um, canister of varnish. It's just a spray on varnish. It's not a particularly exciting one. It is, um, this particular one is Golden as the brand, but there are many brands she's from out there. Um, it's Archival Varnish Mineral Spirit Acrylic Aerosol. Um, and MSA is how I think of it in my head, um, MSA Aerosol. And I will, uh, once the paint is properly dry uh, and cured is the technical term for oil painting, um, then put this over in thin layers. Um, 
you can this is the gloss one i like the gloss one when i'm working with the gold because i found that the less glossy varnishes made the gold look a bit flat and it kind of lost its shine so that's one of the reasons i use gloss but if you're if you're not using gold then actually sometimes the less glossy paints can look better it just depends um but the person i did the apprenticeship with uh who doesn't use any gold in her work she's just an oil painter um she just puts a layer of oil medium over the whole thing and then just that's it it's done and if i wasn't using the gold that's probably what i would do um and i wouldn't varnish it at the end i'm really varnishing it because otherwise the gold's just insanely vulnerable to being scratched mm -hmm. um so yeah i would say that um if you're going to varnish it that's just like and all i've really done in my choice of materials is started by finding someone on the internet or someone in real life who's recommended a particular specific product to me and then i've started with that and then i've branched out from there being like okay well so if i find another brand that's exactly the same that's probably safe or i could research a slightly alternative thing or go for the glossier or less glossy versions um but i definitely think when it's intimidating at the beginning and there's just too much choice uh, which is why I'm kind of holding up my exact things that I use. It's really nice to have a starting point where you go like, okay, well, they use that particular product. Right. So if I go for that particular product, it's probably going to be okay. And then I can feel more confident in exploring beyond that later. Um, so yeah, that was my my kind of end varnish. Um, and I will put a few thin layers on because I like that very glossy feel over the gold part of the painting. Um, but, you know, you might choose to just put one thin layer. Um, if you want a different look and again you'll like it's pretty easy when you're working with it to get a feel for how it's going to look once it dries um after practicing it a little bit what part of your process and I'll, I'll link to your instagram maybe we'll throw up some images here in the video i'll have to figure out if, if i do that what images i include um but that would be fun for people watching this on youtube the uh but but i'm wondering what what is and i guess there's two words to look at at this but what is the most challenging or frustrating part of the piece that you work on what is what is the part that you think oh this one this is the tough part now like what part of your process is really it, you know when we talk about these ones with the gold um which is a lot of your work now if not all yeah. what what is the most challenging part of the process for you um so it's interesting what you were saying earlier about like there's always a point in creating a piece of work where you want to put it in the bin like somewhere between 25 and 75 percent of the way through yes. <laughs> that's still true for me now no matter what i'm doing that always happens and i have these moments of sitting there and being like what have i done why have i done this this looks terrible um and then as you say like learning that you just need to push through and have faith that you will come up the other end and it will look great um and so that still happens and that's still probably for any one piece of work the point of crisis that's hardest to push through um, but <clears throat> the, the kind of doing the gold now I've done it so much over more than three years that it's quite, um, it, it's because it doesn't get like any more difficult, you just get better and better at it and it becomes easier and easier to you. And so now for me, that's the sort of very less stressful, easy to do like process following where if I'm really tired or worn out, I have much mental energy for whatever reason, I'll do the gold part cause it's, um, quite methodical. Whereas painting the detail um, is definitely, I need to be able to concentrate a lot more. Um, and particularly when you're painting, and I imagine anyone who does any art with animals is gonna find this, or even people that the eyes, like humans are drawn to the eyes. The eyes is the emotion, it's the character, it's the connection. Is the eye looking at you, it's the person looking at the painting. Is it like 
shining enough light to look alive or is it looking happy or something and like just the smallest marks can make a really dramatic difference to how the personality of the bird comes across or the the image and so I'd, I'd per square centimeter or millimeter of my painting the eyes are definitely getting the most attention and the most <laughs> focus and um quite often I will start with the eyes actually like less now as I've got more confident but the beginning definitely because I just wanted to like lock that down and be pretty happy with it before I then spent all the many additional hours on the rest of the piece. Um, I think that the, all the texture of the feathers that's super, super detailed, people can like often look at that and be intimidated by it and think, oh my God, the hours, the time, the energy to create those marks is, um, is you know, it's a lot. But actually, again, like you kind of get in the zone and it's amazing how many marks you can make in an hour. <laughs> like you could cover actually more than you would think, mm-hmm. um, just sort of more confidently going for it um yeah so I, I guess for me that the really detailed parts are where I'd put more focus but I do, it's, it's not like I enjoy that any less if anything I enjoy it more it's maybe my favorite part um I don't I like I really love going into my studio and painting because it's I just go into a whole nother realm and I imagine loads of people who are listening to this feel that as well like when you're creating anything you go in that creative space where you stop thinking about other stuff or I'll be listening to a podcast with one half of my brain that's totally separated from the bit that's making the art and I will just be focused and thinking uh, kind of intuitively connecting I suppose with the marks that I'm making and um, in that zone where time passes by and slips away and you just uh, I'm just very content and, and I love it and I live for it um, and I'm a bit addicted probably to it <laughs> go and not paint for a while or not do any art I really miss that that sense of being all absorbed in mark making um so yeah it's it's probably the more challenging in the sense of, of requiring the most focus but not in the sense that I don't enjoy doing it yeah I think I was nodding there and I'm sure a bunch of uh, people listening to this were nodding as well when you're talking about kind of getting in the zone losing yeah. track of time and uh, that's what we all kind of look for that kind of opportunity, right? To be able to just disappear into it. Uh, yeah. in, in looking at all your pieces, I need to ask you this because of the subject you choose or the subjects you choose. What is your favorite bird? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> um, I like a mom choosing a favorite kid. I'm reluctant to <laughs> commit fully <laughs> eternally um, to one particular bird. Uh, I think <clears throat> I've just done this massive painting that I haven't put on my website. I think I just posted it on Instagram a few days ago um, of kakapo birds, which are, there's only 247 birds left alive. Like they are super endangered, one of the most endangered species on the planet. Um, and they are also just adorable, goofy parrots. They're like these big, fluffy, green, like enormous land bound parrots that are really comical and really adorable and um then painting them is like this insane challenge because their pattern is so detailed and if you don't like do it right it won't look like they like they look like you have to kind of get it and but it's intimidating um the amount of detail in the pattern but then like when you commit to that and you do it and then you execute it and it looks cool it's like oh yes i did a thing that's amazing um, so that the challenge and enjoyment of the satisfaction of completing the challenge of painting them is also really appealing. Um, I paint a lot of tui and kararu. Um, tui are a New Zealand bird that's kind of um, like the size and shape of like a blackbird, which I imagine most people have blackbirds or ravens or something like that. 
uh, but they have these super metallic feathers that shine in loads of different colors. And I love being able to play around with all those colors. And they have this cute little white bit in their neck that's quite individual and unique to them that you can kind of add into the character of the bird. They do really cool poses as well. Um, and then the Keru are essentially a pigeon, which is one of the things I like about them, which is um, like, we, I don't know, again, like all these different people around the world listening to this maybe have different ideas of pigeons, but living in London, pigeons are like, <laughs> like, oh God, pigeons, <laughs> like grey, <laughs> pooing everywhere. <laughs> Yeah. exciting like the like the rats of birds yeah rat, rat, rats with wings yeah um, and so the idea that there's this glorified pigeon that people in new zealand are going to great lengths to conserve that's actually is really beautiful i mean it does look pigeony but it also has this metallic feather um pattern the chests are like bright rich green colors with loads of pinks and blues and i really exaggerate and play around with the, the kind of colors of them um, they're really beautiful and they're really um, lovely and our house that we bought was named after them and we have them in the garden all the time and they also have a lot of character um, and yeah then a quick quick shout out to Fantails which are these cute little birds that are like something out of a Disney film you know like when the Disney's princess's skirt is being held up in like yes. 90s Disney's princess, princess for those yes. people who are young um, being held up by the birds they're like those birds they're like the cute little ones that fly around your feet and come right up to you and are just adorable um they're you know they're, they're really wonderful but yeah anyway, I, I will stop because I just keep going for a while <laughs> I think you probably have had enough of a flavor of the birds <laughs> Well, it's it's so interesting. Obviously, it's a it's a unique part of the world, and and the birds. Mm. Um, you know the, the uh, what was it the the, uh, the kakapoo, um, kakapo, yeah, yeah, kakapo. Um, <laughs> yeah. It uh, like I was I would when when I, earlier when I was talking about values, I was thinking about that one uh, mm. as well because the the way you've kind of rendered the areas under the moss where you can still see the suggestion of greenery underneath that is the kind of thing that's important in any kind of drawing or painting uh, that you don't lose that detail right and it doesn't get crushed and uh i think that way you've done that i mean the bird's brilliant but i i i sometimes get lost in the branches and the twigs and the textures yeah. that aren't the animal and i feel a little uh, i feel like the birds looking at me like can you give me some attention here <laughs> But I'm just so like, wow, look at the way the, the bark is. And, and, you know, you just get caught up in that bit. And I don't know if you have the same thing the way you. Yeah, definitely. I think um, the birds, in order to make them like convincing and, and to, for people to kind of connect with them as representations of birds, there's a, there's a lot of constraints on the imagery and, and you can play around with it to an extent, but it needs to, to be a bird and you therefore have to plan it reasonably well in advance. Um, and I tend to paint very true to my kind of digital drawings that I've created. But the the greenery in the background, I have like a rough plan and a sense of like, this is going to be a tree over here and that's going to be some moss over there. But it's a really much freer process. And that big painting that I did had loads more greenery in it than, than some of the other ones I've done. Um, and it was just like weeks and hours of like, I think being freer in that sense of being in the zone, we talked about that sense of losing yourself in creating work and time passing and you being totally in that space. Um, when I'm doing the, the really realistic animals, you have to like not get so lost in that because you've got to be concentrating quite hard on making the marks in the way that they need to be made. When I'm doing the background, it's just so much looser and freer and just like, I am like covered in paint when I paint. Like I, <laughs> like there are, like the person I did this friendship with, literally she paints in a room with carpet and not like messy art studio carpet, like just a, a part of her house that has a, a lovely carpet and lovely furniture. And she just 
puts the paint on the canvas and it doesn't go anywhere else and when I paint it is like on my face on my neck on my hair on my arms on my clothes like the walls the floor like and I would just be when especially doing the background like so many different brushes behind every ear and in each hand and I'm like using both hands and smearing stuff with my fingers and like it just it gets messy but it's really fun and a really um much freer creative space uh and I think I then just go like I'm just gonna make loads of marks and I'm gonna do a thing and then I'm gonna stand back and if it's not how I want it to be I'll then edit it um but I don't feel as constrained and, and that's quite fun and I can see how people could get super into just making really abstract pieces of work but that's the only process because <laughs> um, it's definitely an exciting space to be in yeah that's cool um yeah I'll have to see what kind of oil painter I am I don't think I'm going to be messy <laughs> oh really yes <laughs> I, I would like to be tidy and for the purposes of not getting paint on the gold I've had to learn to be a lot tidier than I right. would instinctively be um and now sometimes I will paint in my like normal clothes um, but mostly I'm just incapable of not making a mess. But I'm like, I'm a messy cook. I'm a messy driver. I'm a messy, I'm just like... Oh, messy driver is not fun. <laughs> I'm, I'm that person. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so I always get to the point uh, before I ask people where they can find you or, to, or you can tell people where you, they can find you is, is homework. It's always nice. Oh, yeah, yeah in listening to somebody talk about their journey and their pieces and and uh, their mediums and their process. And I thank you for sharing all of that. I'm curious what you would uh, share as a matter of homework for someone who wants to, uh, to leave this um, video or this audio podcast and want to do something else. What would you suggest? Yeah, definitely. So again, like everything I do has been, is, you know, ultimately been stolen from somewhere. Um, this is homework that I was set in uh, high school by my high school art teacher who is still like one of the most inspiring teachers I've ever had um, and he um, I did loads of, of kind of life drawing which is naked people um, but you could substitute out naked person with some kind of still life if you want and you know do a bowl of vegetables or a, you know vase or anything really um, but I did this exercise with um, a, a kind of life drawing setting and the process, I'm going to give you like a shorter exercise to do and a longer option, and you could do both or either depending on what suits you. Um, but in whatever medium of creating art you usually use, whether it's watercolors or drawing or um, digital art, like anything, it doesn't, you can adapt this to whatever process you normally follow. Just taking the thing that you're going to represent on paper and starting out with like a five minute time slot, and you're only going to make 20 lines to represent that image, and then you're going to slightly reduce the time down to let's say four minutes and three minutes and two minutes making fewer and fewer lines each time until ultimately you're just making three lines and you're doing it in 15 seconds so it's this real challenge of thinking about like mark making and this that's why when I talk about mark making that teacher just went on and on about mark making so that's why this sort of phrase has come from um and it's really stuck with me so thinking about the marks that you're making and why you're choosing to make them and it's an instinctive process don't like analytically think too hard about it but just do it and then you know see what comes out of that basically um and it, it's uncomfortable i mean like for some of you maybe it's not but for me i found it uncomfortable to to only be I, I just want to make more marks and I'm like but add that bit and this and ah and so then like forcing yourself into like the idea you're ultimately just going to put three lines down on a piece of paper quite quickly to represent the thing in front of you but in a very intentional way not in like giving up whatever random way um is really interesting and again because I was doing human form uh it's it's 
how you're conveying that sense of a person and it's amazing in like 20 lines you can like really convey a lot about the person standing in front of you mm. lines you can like really convey a lot about the person standing in front of you mm. um, <clears throat> in the marks that you make the other exercise where i suggest giving yourself um a minimum of 30 minutes maybe like two hours or a really long period of time uh to make like, a really comprehensive image um is you will close your eyes uh when you're making marks on the kind of paper or whatever canvas you're using and then open your eyes look at the thing that you're looking at close your eyes make marks so you're never making marks with your eyes open hmm. you're only opening your eyes to look at the thing that you're then going to make marks about and then when you're closing your eyes to make the marks you are um you know you obviously have your eyes open when you get your pen close to the paper so you're not drawing on the wall but <laughs> you're then going to have to instinctively visualize in your mind what you looked very hard at and i found that like not only did this make me loosen up a bit in terms of how how the thing that i'm drawing ended up looking like just being less afraid of it looking like bad or not like the thing in front of me and not being obsessive about that but also it forced me to look way better and to like not just look in little increments like i would like look at a bit of detail and then mark that detail down and then you get a bit lost in like details connecting together in a slightly walked way is you like look at the kind of the big pattern of the way the image sits and the smaller details and how they fit together and where they are and um looking at the negative spaces so for people who don't know what that means like imagine you've got a person standing in front of you with their hand on their hip looking at exactly the geometric shape of the hole like through the gap between their arm and their body mm -hmm. and like th then thinking about how that shape is going to fit onto the piece of paper um, and it just improved. It improved my drawing, my confidence. Um, it was a really great exercise. So that's my my little homework for you to go have a go at, basically. I like that. Uh, and <laughs> and the second part of that made me think because I've talked about this <clears throat> on the podcast before, where and I, I'm I'm I I see myself doing it now. But I will be working on a piece. Let's say I'm drawing the the eye of a bird. While I'm doing that, I'm looking at its feet. I'm not even looking where I'm drawing. And I don't know if that's confidence in work or if that's just, I, I'm, I've got that personality that just needs to be, you know, I need a bunch of things happening at the same time. But I found that now that I've gotten to that point, I mess up sometimes. I'll go look back at where I'm actually drawing. And it's like, oh, that, was, that wasn't a good idea what I just did there. And I have to lift the graphite off or I have to... Uh, um, adjust it with if I'm using watercolor, but I, I find it, I'm doing that, and I think that maybe speaks to this idea of of maybe also not being so bound to your tool touching the paper mm -hmm. that you need to liberate yourself away from that experience and understand that it's a larger piece that you're working on and enjoy the experience. And uh, I, now that I see myself doing that, I'm kind of embracing it a little bit more, and I, I don't even think about it except. That it's that I look back and I, I realize I made the mistake and it's like oh I, I was doing it again wasn't I and uh, so I I really like that exercise I mean both are great but the second one was like that would be fun to do a whole image without actually looking at the paper when you were doing anything right yeah. so, or doing everything yeah yeah and it, I mean like in theory if you're disciplined about it you could make marks whilst looking at the thing and not at your piece of paper I suppose um, yes. it's the same kind of idea. Yeah, um, kind of the yeah, blind I mean, contour stuff. Yeah, the, yeah. The teacher who who kind of um, set me this work at the time and, and was my teacher, he was very of the mindset that like you just make marks and don't take, never take any away, never see any as bad, never see things as mistakes or 
like he he like banned there were no erasers in the whole art department like <laughs> like every everyone just goes out there and you make marks and you feel liberated in your mark making and it wasn't in any way that he was highly in favor of more abstract work like he let us do i did loads of portraiture and, and more realism um down the kind of portraiture road um and it, it was just this like just make marks and be confident with it and those marks are expressions and don't don't hate them don't judge them don't see them as one as better than another one just go right. with them and be a bit more liberated and uh, largely i try to stick with that i still now do sometimes revert back to my like oh no that looks bad we need to <laughs> let's retract here <laughs> and one of the things that's fun with digital art is retracting is so easy like you can just you know control z for those people who don't do digital art you're still familiar yes. with the computers and like, you can con control z your drawing like i wish i could control z my painting sometimes um and yeah, with oil painting that, you know, or any, any, I imagine watercolor is probably terrifying. You can't take it away at all. Um, but yeah, then my mom, who is very much of the traditional kind of um, art background, uh, I am very fortunate to have her around and she's my final, like, you know, like when, I don't know if you know about like chefs and fine restaurants will like, will make the food and then the top chef will like, okay, the plate before it goes out yeah. to the customer. She's like my, like my top chef. So like before the <laughs> painting gets released into the world, she'll like, okay it. And in that process, she is like ruthlessly honest and I love it. And she'll just be like, this bit doesn't look good. This bit doesn't look realistic. That foot, that's not believable that week. Like, and often, um, always pretty much she's right. <laughs> and part of me has gone like, okay, I'm done. Thank God I could put the paintbrush down. And you have that right. moment of like, and then I have to go back <laughs> and get my, get my pan out and remix and, um, go and fix the bit. But she, but it's just incredibly valuable. And I feel so lucky to have that brutal honesty and that, that second person's, um, eyes on it, uh, to kind of proofread as such the final draft of the painting. And like that big, um, Kakapo painting we were talking about, like the the shadow on the bird was like way too dark in one place and she totally pulled me up on that and i was like oh that's quite a lot of work to fix <laughs> 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 oh really do i have to accept this as but she was right and it's obviously worth it you know for the sake of a, a few more hours in the studio um to get it to that place where there aren't you know where it looks um as it should you know the, the light looks like it's falling the right way on the bird so yeah, no, that that's great. <laughs> it's uh, it's fantastic that I think it highlights throughout your your whole life that you've had some degree of a network around you, whether it was uh, the kids in school, the five of you in a flat, um, uh, your mom, uh, the tutor nearby, the high school teacher. You've always had people that you can lean on. I think that's important as a creative to make sure that you kind of surround yourself with a network. It doesn't have to be huge but it has to be applicable for that point in your career, right? In your journey. So it's, it's, it, yeah, it's As a privilege, like, so I'm, a, I'm fundamentally objectively a privileged person who has, has benefited from that throughout my life. And I'm very aware of that. Um, and incredibly grateful for, for all of the opportunities and support that I've had, which is not a given that everyone will have that. Right. Um, but yeah, if you, if you don't have those people automatically in your life, you know, you can seek them out. I'm, certainly my friends in my twenties came out of nowhere. I mean, I found them like on the internet, <laughs> literally like, you know, um, like, like online dating for flatmates is how we all met each other. That was it. That's the only connection between any of us. Um, and yet we came together and are still good friends now and really lovely group of people. So, um, but no, I'm very, I feel very grateful and fortunate, uh, that I've had the support that I've had throughout my life. Yeah, for sure. That's wonderful. Um, so I, I think it would be, maybe appropriate for, for us to share where people can find you uh, online and where you 
where you inhabit uh, the, the nooks and crannies of the interwebs uh, the most. Um, so maybe you can start maybe with your website. Yes. So my website is anagibsart.com and my Instagram is at anagibsart. And I think that's probably, uh, now, other than now that I'm on this podcast, <laughs> um, that is probably where you're going to find me. Um, I, if you find me on Facebook or Twitter, don't get too excited. Those things may still exist out there because I failed to delete them. <laughs> Nothing's going to happen on there. I'm not really actively using them. Um, and at the moment, I'm just, my whole approach really is that everything I do is to facilitate me spending the time making the paintings. And so I, I probably anticipate one day I will get into teaching and one day I will get into making prints and one day I'll get into doing all sorts of other things and probably more podcasts and whatever. But um, mostly my real focus is on just maximizing the amount of time and energy I can put into making the paintings. Um, and then I will do all the other things I need to do, like Instagram and um, galleries and stuff to, to facilitate that. But uh, yeah, the, the focus is very much um, to maximize the time in the studio. And so uh, that is, I apologize for my lack of existence in more <laughs> online spaces uh, as it stands. And that will probably evolve over time. But yeah, at the moment, it's, it's mostly just focused on me in the studio as much as I can get, can get that to happen. That's absolutely fine. I think uh, you will be on YouTube now. So that'll oh, be exactly. good. Exactly. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> the next time you, uh, you're asked to be on a podcast, people will have something to reference. So that'll be great. Uh, yeah. So this has been absolutely wonderful. I know that it's a good podcast when I get to the end and I just want to go paint or draw. And I feel <laughs> like that now. And I, I thank you for being so open about um, the challenges you've had uh, with, with mental health and uh, in sharing your process and your journey and how you got to this point in time and just the wonderful success you've had in the three and a half years that, um, you know, since we've had COVID, you've chosen probably the toughest time to not only uh, start a family, but to start a painting seriously. And I admire your um, just your wonderful kind of view of the world that comes out through your painting, but also just this this strength in being able to say i'm just going to do the thing and you do it and so i've just it's been a wonderful uh, opportunity to be able to speak with you i would love to have you back on in the future as your journey tends to meander and you hit new things and i just wanted to say thank you so much for saying yes to coming on oh thank you so much for inviting me and, and hosting me yeah it's been a real real honor thanks again and uh, take care of yourself and enjoy your i guess you're coming up to spring yeah yeah oh yes. yeah today is very much spring is arriving in new nice. zealand <laughs> yeah we've uh i think our t our high tomorrow is going to be over 30 degrees celsius really weird for october for us but then it's uh, dropping down to like 12 degrees so our fall <laughs> our, our, our 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 leaves are red yeah. Is changing over, but I was thinking as I was setting up for this, it's like, oh, I, I, I can appreciate. I love fall; it's my favorite season. Yeah, it's my favorite. I love fall. But, so, uh, like a sunny, cool day in fall. Yes, it's just amazing. It is. Yeah. The colors in the forest are just yeah. incredible. Beautiful. Yeah. 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 All right, Anna. Well, take care of yourself, and thanks again yeah, for thank for so being much. on the podcast. <laughs> okay. Take care. Bye. Bye. Show notes, including links to everything Anna and I spoke about, can be found at drawinginspiration.fm slash 108. If you enjoy the show, please follow and then share it with someone you think may find it helpful with their creative journey. Thank you so much for joining us this week. 
Be kind to yourself and each other, and keep drawing. Theme music for this podcast is Acid Jazz, provided by Kevin McLeod.